0: Bienvenidos, marhaban, and welcome to the Never Never Podcast, rereading the Dresden Files series by Jim Butcher. I'm your host, Christine. I'll be releasing multi-chapter analysis episodes for each book, along with special bonus episodes. The Never Never Podcast may include spoilers from all sources, including the books, short stories, graphic novels, and blog posts, interviews, and panels from the Butcher himself. The Dresden Files features mature themes, including sexuality, fantasy violence, and very real violence. Also, I'm terrible at watching my language, so the Never Never podcast is intended for mature audiences, despite having playful, if not childish, tendencies. So, let's draw our circle and step through the way to the Never Never. Episode 4, Caught With His Staff Down. Recorded August 8th, 2020. Covering Stormfront, Book 1. Chapters 8 through 10. In this episode. We meet Harry's apartment and Bob the Skull, and we learn about potion making. We'll get more into the weeds of sexism in the Dresden Files. Harry interviews a vampire, makes a deadly enemy, follows some leads, and gets jumped for his trouble. It seems his investigation is being thwarted at every turn. And now, with no more ado, here is your synopsis. Chapter 8. Bob and the Potions Harry comes home to his basement plus sub-basement apartment, and we are introduced to his eclectic thrift store style. Unable to sleep, Harry wakes his assistant. The horny spirit of intellect, Bob, who lives inside and animates a human skull. Bob agrees to help Harry with an escape potion in exchange for trying a new potion that tickles Bob's fancy. Potions are a tricky discipline, different from thaumaturgy and evocation. Like with casserole, two is as easy as one, so they make a double batch. The escape potion and a love potion. Well, lust potion. Did I mention Bob was a horny spirit? Finished, Harry pours them into two identical sports bottles, but clearly labels them in Sharpie. How could that possibly go wrong? Chapter 9, Bianca and the Hunger. Murphy calls again. She wants answers about the murder ritual and to make sure Harry isn't going to see Bianca for the investigation. Harry says he'll have something by Monday and that he won't go. Then he loads up and heads over to her brothel, the velvet room. Her security try to disarm him, but he's brought more than weapons. Bianca is gorgeous. Harry stays focused and starts asking questions about the broken heart murder victims. At their mention, Bianca flies into a rage. Harry damages her in self-defense, causing her to shed her flesh mask and show her revolting true visage. Harry gets a lead out of her, but in her weakened state, Bianca must feed to regain her strength. Too bad her valued retainers are so. mortal. Chapter 10 Linda, the Becketts, and the Baseball Bat. Harry tracks Linda to the airport. She's a driver, waiting for her clients, the Becketts. She is suggestive towards Harry and stonewalls him. If by suggestive one means, shall we? He heads home, and on his front stairs, he's attacked by a man with a baseball bat and falls down his steps. The man threatens Harry to stop investigating the murders, or else, just can't catch a break. I mean, literally, it's probably just a concussion. Which brings us to the context section. Here, we discuss the series' overarching plot, groundwork, character intros, and world building, as well as any meta aspects mythology, callbacks to other books, foreshadowing, and theory. Chapter 8, Bob and the Potions. In his apartment-slash-cave, we see more of Harry's personality expressed in his home decor. He keeps his floor covered in overlapping, random selections of rugs. He has rugs and tapestries on the walls to help with keeping the basement warm if you can call a dogs playing poker cloth wall hanging a tapestry. He also has several movie posters. Pride of place to an original Star Wars theater poster from his childhood before his magic made anything but a drive-in movie impossible. Harry's life is affected daily by the phenomenon of magic shorting technology and goes without many of the modern comforts. He uses a wood-burning stove, and a real icebox filled with cans of Coke. No hot water and candles and oil lamps or magic for light. There's no cell phone, no TV, no video games, no computer, no internet. So what does Harry do all the time? He works cases for his clients. He reads fiction voraciously and he practices enchanting and potions. So, since he can't sleep, he unwinds in the sub-basement lab, making potions with Bob, the literal talking head character who allows Harry to teach the reader about the rules of magic in conversation rather than a narrator info dump. We'll talk at length about his character as the series unfolds, learning most of how Bob's species works in Ghost Story book 13. Species. Race? classification, whatever, his status as a memory spirit or spirit of intellect. His character intro and his interaction with Harry I'll tackle in just a minute. First, let's talk about the foray into the magic system of the Dresden verse. We get a quick primer on a third branch of magic, potions. Our two examples are an escape potion and a love potion, the latter insisted upon by Bob the perv skull when he agrees to make the additional potion for Bob in the first place, Harry feels uneasy about the possible consequences of a love potion, but brushes them off, knowing its effect will fizzle out after a couple of days, and then has this thought, quote, How much trouble could it cause? Unquote. Wow, my sweet summer child. You'd think that after reading hundreds of fiction novels, he'd have noticed how dangerous words like that can be for a protagonist. Just never say that. It is known. Setting aside the moral implications of love potions that influence a person's behavior, let's look at potions in general, what they're supposed to do, and how they're made. All potions have eight components. A liquid base and one ingredient for each of the traditional five senses, plus intellect and spirit apparently one's sense of balance or humor are not senses to which one must appeal every ingredient must be something which evokes the desired effect for that aspect for that sense harry tells us quote potions were a tricky business and a lot more relied on precise details than upon intent like in it spells Unquote. it's symbolic chemistry and finicky to boot there's a great quote funny which serves both as helping to define for us the relationship between Harry and Bob and a world building hint of what kind of consequences a wizard can suffer when they get it wrong. And please forgive me for my British accent. Bob has one, and my brain would itch if I voiced him as an American. Okay, quote. Okay, Bob, fine. You win. We'll do them both. All right. Bob's eye lights came up warily. You're sure you'll do the love potion, just like I say? Don't I always make the potions like you say, Bob? What about the diet potion you tried? Okay, that one was a mistake. And the anti-gravity potion, remember that? We fixed the floor! It was no big deal! And the- Fine! Fine! I growled. Don't have to rub it in. Now, cough up the recipes. Unquote. The recipes are fun too the escape potion has a base of jolt cola which for young people that was the 90s answer to red bull and maybe 80s too but i don't remember because i'm not quite that old they add motor oil for smell a cut up bird feather for touch ground chocolate covered espresso beans for taste a shredded bus ticket for the mind a broken chain for the heart and two very abstract ingredients, a flickering shadow for sight, and mouse scampers for sound. I'd love to know how those were sourced. and Maybe we'll see the magical process for capturing these uncapturable things someday, but I doubt it. It might detract from the magic of... the magic. The Love Potion has components similarly, abstractions representative of the concept of a potion a base of tequila rather than champagne, and a look at the potion's effects later skews it solidly into a lust potion rather than a love or even romance potion. Next goes in chocolate, a drop of perfume, shredded lace, a sigh, candlelight, the ashes of a passionate love letter for which Harry had to substitute the page of a trashing romance novel, and a teaspoon of powdered diamond. There was no powdered diamond. They made do with a shredded $50 bill. Once the symbolically significant ingredients are simmering, one adds the magical energy and incantation to activate them and voila, potion. It is here that we are clued into something very important to the world building of the series and to the plot of this book in particular. Where does a wizard get the juice to cast spells? it can come from a special place, usually some spectacular natural site like Mount St. Helens or Old Faithful, from a focus of some kind, like Stonehenge's on a large scale, or from inside of people, unquote. A person's raw emotions, concentration, or willpower are all fuel sources for magical mana. It is highly significant that the force of the natural world can power spells, and we are told this critical piece of information about a third of the way through book one. Wonder if that's gonna come up in the end game. Yay for foreshadowing! Harry puts the potions in twin squeezy sports bottles and writes on them, ESCAPE and LOVE in permanent marker mentioning specifically that he doesn't want them to get mixed up. Yeah, that's not an oops waiting to happen. Now onto Bob as a character. Bob is a memory spirit several hundred years old, whose magical shelter is a carved, enchanted skull. As sunlight harms such spirits, the protection of such a relic is necessary. He is so bonded to this home that it even moves and morphs its shape to emote for him. When he is interacting with the outside world, the eyes of the skull glow with a warm, orangish light that also dim and brighten to reflect his passion and emphasis is capable of exiting the skull in a rush of orange light and sparks, marking his path. But he's also bound to the will of whomever owns or possesses the skull, a bit like a genie in their lamp, and cannot leave without his owner's permission. Quick side note, we learn later, I believe in Ghost Story Book 13, that Harry has owned the skull, and therefore Bob, since he was a teenager. And we don't know exactly how old Harry is, but in this first story, he's mid-twenties. That's about 10 years. When Bob futilely demands a short furlough in this chapter, 24 hours to go wild out in the world, Harry says this, quote, Bob, I let you out once, remember? He nodded dreamily, scraping bone on wood. The sorority house, I remember, Unquote. And then Harry suitably admonishes Bob for his constant sexual comments when he suggests that he does more than just peep. Yes, he's misbehaved, and Bob's influence on Harry's attitude towards sex is probably not the healthiest. Bob makes comments about seducing shepherdesses for centuries and pigeonholing that chicks dig money slash chocolate slash steamy romance writing. He suggests that Harry could use the love potion to help him get laid, which, for a horrible moment, Harry considers before stomping out the thought. Even so, seriously? Bob's been out of the skull just once. In a decade. Harry, Harry. Bob says it himself, quote, You're trivializing what getting out for a bit means to me, Harry. You're insulting my masculinity, unquote. Bob is obviously a very sexual individual, and his shelter has become a cage. No wonder Bob is such an incorrigible horn dog. Speaking of which! So, despite not technically having a physical sex, Bob, in his cocky, he him identified bravado, teases Harry about his inexperience with dating women. Harry knows this is true, but defensively points out that he's got a date on Saturday, because it happens that today he honestly can say that. Now, this exchange is important for character development, but it also serves to remind the reader of an upcoming plot event, Harry's date with Susan. Now, we won't talk about this again for a while, but put a pin in that. For now, Bob's sexuality is an interesting conundrum. He has no physical sex, by which I mean one particular set of genitals or another, or even a set which presents in between, on a physical body, yet he does identify as male. In addition, he exhibits a strong, uh, nay, a colossal sex drive, despite his inability to physically participate in sexual activity, at least without cohabiting a body by performing a ride-along in their head, I I assume. I mean, perhaps he can use his incorporeal form to stimulate another person, but that is a different podcast. <laughs> the question we must ask is why? He has no biological urge to reproduce, translating to a physical need. From whence comes this attitude and these behaviors? Now, Jim has said in a Q&A that Bob's personality is influenced by taking on some of his owner's traits, and sometimes amplifying them. So it would follow that Bob's libido is what it is because of who Harry was when he acquired the skull, a normal 16-year-old horny young man. That doesn't excuse some of the borderline rapey innuendos Bob makes, even though it does help to explain them. But is that the whole story? And exactly how much of his personality is formed by that influence? Who was Bob before Harry, before his other masters we know of before Harry? Between owners, Is Bob a clean slate, just a database with the capacity for learning and exhibiting or developing a personality? Or is there some intrinsic person inside Bob, something beyond his vast knowledge that doesn't change? And I think there must be. We meet other versions of Bob in future books, and while they aren't all lascivious, they are all witty or snarky, and they are all supremely confident thinking themselves superior to others. That could be coincidence, but while I have no concrete evidence either way, my intuition says no. I think that's just Bob. Tell me what you think in the comments. Chapter 9, Bianca and the Hunger. Murphy needs answers and is beyond being polite about it, reflecting the pressure she's getting from her higher-ups to close the case. It's interesting that despite her rudeness, Harry won't give her the same talk he gave to Monica, that, to respect each client, he won't put one case over another. He does, however, lie when Murphy forbids him from going to Bianca's. She catches this lie and tries to call him on it, but he feigns a bad connection and hangs up. Harry gathers some subtle weapons, magic defenses, and the escape potion, so he won't be caught at the vampires unarmed. This is the chapter when we learn a very important thing about magic and wizards and how formidable they are in the Dresdenverse. Though longer-lived and with more tricks up their sleeve when they get a chance to prepare, wizards are just as vulnerable to injury and death as any other vanilla human. Wizards are squishy, just like in Dungeons & Dragons. Wisdom 17, Constitution 4. At Bianca's high-end establishment, Harry would have to try to be further out of place. His VW, the Blue Beetle, a noble warrior in its own right, stutters and dies in a billow of black smoke at Bianca's security gate. Harry insists on seeing the madam. A guard disarms him of his silver knife and sword cane, but lets him in to wait with his clean white hanky, his health cola, and his pentacle necklace given to him by his witch mother representing the harnessing of the primordial forces of creation harry's pentacle necklace is the emblem of harry's magic in which he has faith galore in this world of symbolic power that's as good as a crucifix against a vampire jim's language introducing bianca is curious quote she came into the room like a candle burning with a cold, clear flame." It struck me, so I'm making a note of it here, in case it comes up again. Anyway, cue saxophone. Bianca enters, positively dripping sex. Dark hair, dark eyes, flawless skin, heels, slitted gown, legs for days. On the accusation of Harry and his controversial treatment of women. Bianca is the supernaturally gorgeous madam of a brothel. She spent time and effort presenting herself as wanting to be wanted. Harry appreciates her, behaving as a perfect gentleman, and isn't lewd even in the privacy of his own thoughts. Away from Bob? So far, Harry seems to have very little tendency to sexually objectify women. I think the issue with Harry and women is his inability to put away outdated notions like chivalry. Now, here is a hot-button issue for some. I know there are many people, women included, who believe chivalry is the proper way to treat a lady, promoting an attitude that encourages society to protect our mothers and sisters, our daughters and wives, from harm and disrespect. There are also many people, men included, who believe that chivalry, despite having the aim of respecting women, actually serves to reinforce the idea that women are helpless, or at least more so than men, thereby objectifying them in a different way than does sexualizing them. We will not solve this debate in an urban fantasy podcast, but I think it's worth thinking about, and I invite you to leave your thoughts in the comments below. Harry and Bianca banter, both acknowledging their dual membership to the mortal world of Chicago and the unseen world of the Unseelie Accords. A detective is interviewing a sex worker, but also the White Council of Wizards and her vampiric court are also in audience. So when Harry gets to business and asks about the murder victims, He has little expectation of violence and only a moment to react to it to save his own life. At the mention of Jennifer Stanton, Bianca becomes enraged and attacks him. He pulls out his innocent handkerchief and flings it open at her, releasing the ray of sunshine he'd saved for a potion ingredient. It was devastating, tearing away her thin facade of beauty in chunks to reveal the slimy, flabby bat creature beneath. It's Selma Hayek in From Dusk Till Dawn all over again. Another note, as soon as the flesh mask is discarded, Harry starts using the pronoun it instead of her to refer to Bianca in her creature form though she's still obviously a sentient being with thoughts, memories, and emotions. And we'll see how this proceeds in future books as the Red Court becomes more prominent. Harry's pentacle shines with his faith in the workings of magic and keeps her at bay. Why would she break protocol like this? Like Marcone with Tommy, Jennifer was under Bianca's protection. Like Morgan, she thinks Harry is the murderer, Bianca says, quote, you killed Jennifer. She was mine, mageling. Unquote. There's a standoff of the put it down. If I put it down, you'll kill me. If you don't put it down, I'll definitely kill you. Variety. Until a fragile and temporary piece is reached. Now, even though she agrees to give Harry a shot in the dark lead, it seems the trip was all for nothing. Bianca doesn't know who killed them, if it wasn't Dresden. Harry has embarrassed and weakened Bianca in her own domain. Furthermore, Harry is bleeding from their scuffle, and Bianca is hungry now. A retainer, Paula, enters to feed her mistress, and Harry leaves forthwith. At the gate, Harry waits for Paula to bring the promised phone number of one of Jennifer Stanton's friends and former co-workers. Maybe Linda Randall knows something. A different person brings him the info. Apparently, Paula did not survive the feeding. Best of all, Bianca blames Harry. Good thing vampires fear the retribution of the White Council. Otherwise, she might retaliate. But he's a member, even if not their favorite one. He's safe. Right? I'm reminded of the Princess Bride quote. You keep using that word. I don't think it means. What do you think it means? Chapter 10. Linda, the Beckets, and the baseball bat. Harry calls Linda from a payphone. Remember when those existed? Harry describes her voice as furry, velvety, tactile, her laugh as delicious. From the second sentence she utters, she's flirting is a pale word. Quote, Harry who? she asked. Dresden, I'm I'm a private investigator. She laughed, the sound rich enough to roll around naked in. Investigating my privates, mister Dresden? I like you already. Unquote. And once he detectives and cleverly tracks her to O'Hare Airport's arrivals curb, the innuendo escalates from there. Again, innuendo is inadequate. Maybe out or single entendre. Linda is interesting. She's sexually aggressive, which can be an attractive quality if applied with judicious respective boundaries. Her brand of it seems to be a compensation, a mask used as a shield from the emotional pain of allowing herself to be genuinely vulnerable. In the space of just a few pages, Linda Randall becomes a whole person, not just a lead in Harry's investigation. Go, Jim. Now, at the end of the conversation, Harry asks her bluntly why the slut act. He then observes what he calls self-loathing in her eyes as she tells Harry that sex, orgasms, are like her heroine. Now, first of all, tisk tisk, Harry. Slut-shaming has no place in the culture of equal value, equal rights, and equal opportunity this generation is thankfully building, dragging the boomers by their short and curlies to a better world. But being as slut-shaming still exists, and did much more strongly twenty years ago, I shall comment thusly. When a woman has and acts upon a high sex drive, the purity culture of yesteryear would say that sex devalues a woman, Like driving one's new car off the lot, she is worthless, if not wholly worthless. Therefore, a promiscuous woman should loathe herself. The ubiquity of this attitude, overt, subtle, and even unconscious, implants this as a core belief and then reinforces it nearly minute by minute. One cannot simply excise the tumor once it's identified. The only way to escape that self-loathing is to make conscious effort to replace sexist and sex-negative thoughts, language, and behaviors, again, minute by minute, slowly retraining oneself to think positively about one's sexuality and one's self-worth. Not everyone is ready to put in that kind of hard work, if they even know from where all of these horrible feelings come from. I've been working on it for going on 20 years. It's a process. So, Though I chose the episode title Caught With His Staff Down for another reason, which we'll get to at the end of this section, I realized while writing this that it has another meaning. Making it a double entendre, because we're highbrow here at the Never Never Podcast. Between Bob, Bianca, and Linda, the theme of sexuality is woven judiciously throughout these three chapters. Bob wants Harry to get laid to attain a vicarious sex life for himself. Bianca tries to use sex to manipulate Harry. Linda similarly uses it to distract and stonewall him. All are trying to push sexuality on him. And he's only human. Good thing he's got great focus, otherwise he could be caught with his staff down. As for the plot reveals, Harry learns that Jennifer Stanton and Tommy Tom were basically long-term sport-fucking, including Linda Randall from time to time. He intuits that her claim of ignorance on the case is a lie. He briefly sees the couple for whom she drives, Mr. and Mrs. Beckett. They have a childless, double-income lifestyle apparent from their looks and affect. Mrs. Beckett's calm face betrays nothing devoid of emotion, like many a concentration camp survivor. Empty, numb, dead inside. He also notes that Linda lies to the Beckets about who Harry is, claiming he's an old lover turned friend. She shoes him off, but takes his business card. Next, Harry sits to collect his thoughts. He's still totally screwed, and not in the fun way. He's still got Murphy breathing down his neck, and the threat of jail time if she finds out about him speaking to Bianca. Speaking of whom, he's made her into an enemy. The white council thinks he's a murderer and will likely kill him in a couple of days. He must contemplate some icky black magic and is not looking forward to it, so he decides to work on the missing husband case. His one lead from Toot Toot is the pizza truck. Upon calling he immediately learns that he is not the first to call and ask to speak to the driver the driver tells harry as though for the second time he's sorry and he won't tell anyone about the orgy he saw also he wasn't with the other guy who was outside taking pictures i got to go interesting who called the pizza place before him was it victor sells trying to cover his infidelity and who was this photographer Was he working alone or for an employer? He remembered the film canister from the lake house grass. As for the murders, Linda Randall was a dead end. He'd just have to suck it up and figure out the explodey heart spell. He goes home and on his stoop, he's cracked in the head by a baseball bat. Harry tumbles down the steps, a foot on the back of Harry's neck. The attacker threatens him to leave off the case or else he'll sleep with the fishes, see? That's my ridiculous verbiage, not Jim's. Harry, once alone and reeling, displays symptoms of being concussed beside being emotionally shaken. But a quick self pep talk gets him to start asking more questions. Now who does that guy work for? First guess, Johnny Marcone. Harry digs out his 38 special to keep on his person now and heads down to his lab to work out the how of the blackest of magics. The original reason I chose the episode title caught with his staff down is the overt meaning Jim cites preparedness. Despite his preparation for defending himself at the velvet room, Harry was not expecting to get jumped by Bianca as the conversation was going smoothly and definitely not expecting to get jumped by the goon with the baseball bat out of the blue. Now truthfully, I think the other meaning works better. Now that's all for this episode of the Never Never Podcast. <sighs> My peeps, this one took forever. I had a lot of things going on personally, and there were a lot of complex and controversial issues I felt needed addressing in the episode. What do you think about Bob's libido? A Harry and Women? Or his visits to Bianca and Linda? Leave me a comment. Arigato, dankeschön, and thank you all kindly for listening. A special thank you to Jason Hall 1016 for your listenership, interaction, encouragement, and patience. Thank you to my supporters, without whom this project would not be possible. You know who you are. Thank you to my inspirations, a few linked below, those literary podcast giants on whose mighty shoulders I attempt to balance. And thanks to Jim Butcher, for creating such a thrilling and insightful series, up about which I simply cannot shut. The Never Never podcast is hosted on Podbean. Now, iTunes sent me an email saying I was now on their platform, but I couldn't find it when I searched, so who knows what's going on with that. In the meantime, please follow, share, comment. Tell me what you liked, what you didn't like, and what you'd like to see from me in the future. Or contact me at the Podcast at gmail.com. See you next time. Take care.